Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. It is session number 134 tonight, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting back to talking about that poem more, because I am sure that you, like me, did not get nearly enough of that poem last time. Um, so we're going to... Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna do that today. Uh, first though, I've got a barrel of announcements, so I'm, I'm gonna try to spend too long on them, but some of them are kind of big, kind of a big deal, so I, 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 I'm, I don't want to slight them either. Um, <clears throat> but, let's <laughs> see, I see that, Tillian. A poem inside of a dream will be, will be set until May. <laughs> it's true. It's true. That's a dangerous combination on this, uh, on, the, on this show, isn't it? Um, okay. Anyway, so, okay, so announcements. So, uh, announcements for tonight. So, just a couple, let me start with some simpler things. Uh, one simple thing. Tomorrow night is our first session of our new Mythgard Academy discussion of Morgoth's Ring, Volume 10 of the History of Middle-Earth. Um, we're, so the Morgoth's Ring is basically where we're going to be resuming Tolkien's work on the Silmarillion, looking at his progress on the Silmarillion after he finished The Lord of the Rings, right? When we did Sauron Defeated, Volume 9, we're reading a lot of material that he did kind of in the middle, like what he interrupted the writing of The Lord of the Rings with, um, a lot of the Numenor stuff especially. In Morgoth's Ring, we move to after he finishes The Lord of the Rings and it's out there, right? What does he do next, right? You're Tolkien. You've just published The Lord of the Rings. What do you do? So that's what we're going to be looking at in Morgoth's Ring. So I'm really excited uh, to look at that. We're going to be so tomorrow. We're going to be talking about the first part, which is the Ainulindale. We're going to be looking at how uh, what he did with the Ainulindale uh, when he uh, when he returned to it after writing The Lord of the Rings. So that's tomorrow night's uh, uh, discussion. Uh, you can, if you want to join us for that, you can either join us on the Twitch channel or you can join us in the GoToWebinar session that we have for that. You can register for that on MythGuard.org. Go to the MythGuard Academy page and you'll be able to see not only our full class schedule there, but you'll be able to find the link to register uh, uh, to join there. But like I said, you can also watch it on the Twitch channel and of course they will be posted to a YouTube playlist as well as normal. So that is the first and simplest of my announcements. The second thing that I wanted to talk about is uh, related to my podcast feed. So many of you will have noticed, I know many of you have noticed, because many of you have commented on it, uh, that there have been a bunch of issues with my podcast feed. That's kind of mildly worded. <clears throat> there have been a bunch of issues with my podcast feed. And these have been, there have been all kinds of uh, sort of reasons for them. There have been episodes that are uh, posted late. There are episodes that just kind of vanish and we don't even realize they, they vanished or why they vanished. We've had all kinds of iTunes issues. iTunes has had all manner of trouble. Anyway, we've been dealing with all kinds of things uh, with the podcast feed. And we're, so we decided, my uh, Signum team uh, and I decided to just kind of bite the bullet and we're, we're shifting the entire hosting structure of my podcast feed. The feed isn't going to change. That is, you know, you won't have to like resubscribe to it or anything. It should be the same. But we're, we're kind of shifting everything over behind the scenes. So it was a pretty big project, but we're, uh, we're coming to the end of that now. Um, one of the major changes, though, since we're making the change anyway, since we were doing all that work behind the scenes 
repackaging stuff and putting it out. We decided to make a um, uh, we decided to make a change to the structure of the podcast as well to make things a little simpler on people, uh, and that is uh, it's specifically related to exploring the Lord of the Rings. So we, we're taking the exploring the Lord of the Rings episodes. And we're putting them in their own dedicated podcast feed. Um, you may remember, a year, a, you know, several years back, we created a separate uh, Mythgard Academy uh, podcast feed. We're now having a separate one for exploring the Lord of the Rings as well. Um, so that uh, and now uh, the film film project is going to remain in the Tolkien Professor uh, feed. But this way, because those two, you know, these two projects, exploring the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion film project, are such very long-term projects. Uh, I know that there are a lot of people who sort of follow one but not the other one, and so having them in two separate feeds will actually make it much simpler for people to follow just the one uh, that they're doing. It will also make it easier for people to kind of binge and not have to sift through and trace episodes and stuff. So anyway, we, we thought that was uh, that would actually be a, a pretty cool step forward. So uh, again, since we were doing all that work anyway... We just went ahead and uh, uh, and did that. So, if you are wanting, to f- so you can search for it. I think it's already searchable. Um, you can try it right now. Um, I think it's already on Google and Apple and a couple other places. So, if you just search for "Exploring the Lord of the Rings," you should be able to find the dedicated new feed for "Exploring the Lord of the Rings." Um, I am also. It is my very sincere hope. Um, that this combined with a few other uh, uh, sort of vaccines changes uh, that we're making, uh, I think we should have resolved most of our uh, uh, feed issues. Uh, so I'm hoping that we are seeing the end of that. Um, anyway, so that is the second announcement. I just wanted to let you guys know that that was happening so that nobody is, uh, um, nobody is, too, nobody is too shocked about any of that. Uh, uh, so just to kind of warn folks about that. Um, okay. The third announcement, uh, is just a, a couple note about moots. Of course, as will be no surprise to anybody, we were, despite my intentions, uh, we were compelled uh, to postpone both of our two upcoming moots, Magnolia Moot next month and Sunshine Moot, which was meant to be this weekend, um, because, of course, due to the restrictions, uh, they kept, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they kept kind of narrowing in on us at Sunshine Moot, uh, reducing the number from 5,000 down to 250 and then down to 50 and then finally to 10. So I was like, okay, okay, all right, fine. Okay, fine. We won't do it. Um, so anyway, so we, um, uh, uh, we, uh, we, so we, we end up had, have to, having to postpone that. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, of course, obviously we'll let you guys know dates that we're going to reschedule to. Those are uncertain right now, obviously, but we're, we're working on that. I'm certainly not giving up on either one of those uh, moots. And I I still hope to connect with folks that were planning to come uh, to both of those moots just at a different time. Um, Myth moot is at this point still going on. That's the very end of June. Uh, Of course, as you know, nobody knows anything about what's going to be happening. Who knows? The thing that I would emphasize about, um, Mythmoot, as I've emphasized before, 
Registering for MythMoot is a very low-risk proposition. Obviously, we're uh, very flexible with, you know, if something happens, if there's a reason that you can't uh, come or shouldn't come or whatever, um, obviously, we, we, we're, you know, very... Uh, uh, ready with refunds and things. It's you know you're not you're not uh, uh, putting much at risk uh, by registering, um, but uh, reserving your place is a really is a really good thing. But anyway, so we're we're definitely um, uh, we're definitely still planning to move ahead with that. That's more than three months from now, and as far as we know, uh, you know, at this point, there's no issues. Obviously, we'll stay tuned and see what happens, um, but we're still uh, hoping on that. And as uh, Sharon just mentioned, we did also extend the early bird pricing on that to the 20th. It was it was supposed to expire last week, but we felt like in the middle of like everything that was going on, we're like, let's give people, you know, another week to think about uh, their plans and stuff. So, um, we extended that a little bit. So the early bird uh, pricing is still going on. And I think I saw, Tony, a question from you about Silm Film. When does season five of Silm Film start? And that is next Thursday, the 26th. Um, that's when we scheduled it because I was meant to not be here this Thursday night because uh, I was meant to be traveling down to Florida, which I shan't be now. Uh, but um, anyway, so yeah, so that's why we scheduled it for the 26th. So we're just sticking to that schedule. Uh, so yeah, so next week will be the beginning of season five, uh, our discussion of season five of the film film project, uh, which I, I can't, cause we, we get, uh, the, the arrival of men in Beleriand, uh, and we're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to be discussing in Mythgard Academy in Morgoth's ring. We're going to be discussing the Athrobeth of Finrod and Andreth, one of my favorite short pieces Tolkien ever wrote, um, uh, and the story of Andreth and Ignor is going to be a major feature of season five. I can't wait for that. Um, anyhow, so that that'll all be that'll all be a lot of fun, and that stuff is going on. So obviously, you know, stay posted. Uh, you know, just sort of stay tuned, and we'll we'll, we'll keep you guys posted about uh, moot stuff. But you know, you guys all know the weird situation around here. Uh, by round here, I mean on planet Earth, <laughs> honestly. Um, but um, but I I, I got to tell you, as um, as a full time Signum person, it's a little bit um, it's a little bit interesting uh, <laughs> because sometimes people will ask me, so how are you holding up? You know, like under the uh, under the weird circumstances, and I'm like, um, okay. Yeah, I've not left my house in like six days <laughs> and I didn't even notice like I, I that is to say, like, considering that I already live in a world where almost 100 percent, like almost everything I do outside my family, uh, you know, is online already anyway. Like I my my life has not really changed appreciably. Even even a full quarantine would make a relatively small impact on my life. Moot travel, uh, uh, not uh, included. Um, but um Anyway, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so we'll see. Well, Mad Violinist, I don't think we'll be switching to two exploring the Lord of the Rings a week uh, during quarantine conditions. Um, 
Uh, I, I should uh, post. Actually, Sharon, could you post it here? Some people might not have seen it. Uh, 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 Curtis at uh, Signum did a little infographic of all of the hours worth of programming we have from all of our current Signum programs. Uh, if you'd like, need something to like occupy your time during the quarantine. Uh, and I think he calculated that the total running time of the Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, series to this point was something like 13 days and change, uh, you know, around the clock uh, at this point. So um, anyway, that's uh, um, <laughs> so we can we, we already have plenty to keep people uh, occupied. Um, so uh, <laughs> Green Grey Dragon says we're we're just we, we were just hoping to live to the end. Yeah, no, it, we still have hope, I think. Uh, of that, no, no problems. Um, yeah, Rococo says same here as stay-at-home mom. Yeah, exactly. Uh, some of uh, some of our daily lives are affected more than others. Um, but um, yeah, good. Okay. Uh, the last thing is actually a little bit more. Uh, let me and actually kind of connected with the um, uh, uh, sort of quarantines and other issues. Um, I just wanted to direct your attention to a couple things on the Signum webpage or some new stuff. I announced this last night, but in case folks missed this, uh, this is something I just wanted to make sure to, men to mention, you know, want people to spread the word. Of course, Signum University has been operating as a completely online and synchronous university for 10 years. Uh, and we're kind of, you know, we've been this like weird little isolated a university doing things differently from everybody else and we've been kind of looking around in some alarm as all of a sudden almost every university in the country is trying to operate just like us uh so it's it's been a an interesting moment uh actually uh as that's been happening but of course one of the things that we definitely are sensitive to is that there are just there are hundreds even thousands of teachers and professors from, you know, kindergarten through graduate school uh, teachers who are being just kind of shoved into uh, online teaching, uh, often with very little support or training, um, and a lot of people feeling really confused and really at sea. And of course, this is a world that, you know, is is like our native culture now. Um, so we, we want to be able to help uh, as we can. So um, a couple things that I wanted to draw your attention to. One uh, is this, uh, uh, this blog post that you can see at the top of our uh, page here, our 11 tips for teaching online from Signum faculty. Just a few, just some, some really uh, good sort of, uh, you know, simple pithy things that you can do to help make uh, online sessions simple. Just words of advice from experienced Signum faculty who've been doing this for a long time. Last night I recorded my session doing a kind of a demonstration and discussion about some, 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 some pretty basic but but important things to do uh, just to sort of feel more comfortable um, with uh, uh, with that the recording of that is on our YouTube channel the recording of last night's session that I did is on our YouTube channel uh, so uh, you guys can look at that the other thing that I announced last night um, so again, if you scroll down our, our homepage here a little bit you can see well first we're having our anytime audit quarantine special uh, you can get uh, any of our anytime audits uh, for $75 we're doing a special on everything uh, so that people can download some of our old courses to, uh, uh, to go through during the quarantine um, and, um, oh, hey, Hugin, welcome. Glad you could, uh, uh, join us here tonight for the first time. That's cool. Um, 
and anyway, uh, but 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 the big thing that we're doing here uh, that we just launched yesterday, uh, last night actually, when I was doing my session, um, is the Signum Teacher Mentorship Program, um, and basically this is just this is the way in which we're trying to help uh, everybody as much as we can. Um, you know, I've been we've been trying to give tips and suggestions and advice and, and you know, we can be helpful in some small ways. But I know that what a lot of people need is somebody to come alongside them and kind of help them think through what it means. Like a lot of people are just being told, like a lot of teachers, right, are just being told, OK, you have your plan of what to do. Right. Just um, do that online now. Like just, you know, like shift that over to online delivery for the next few weeks. And, like you know, people are like. Why? How do I? How do I do that? Like, what do I do? Because um, it's it's non-trivial to think about how to make that kind of conversion. Because it's not it's not just simplistic. It's not it's not super hard either. But it's not it's not trivial either. And what I found from talking to um, other folks, other professors, you know, working in other brick and mortar schools who are going through this, a lot of the the training, you know, a, a lot there are a lot of a lot of professors and teachers around the country attending mandatory training sessions on how to teach online right now, but the vast majority of those, from what you know, from what I've been told by friends and colleagues, the vast majority of those are like tech sessions, right? Like, here's how to use the tools that we have available to you and uh, for you to do, and that's important. Like, don't get me wrong, that's really important uh, to be taught how to use Zoom and or whatever tool you're using. Um, but that's not, I think, that's not the, it's certainly not the only thing that uh, teachers need in order to be able to understand how to effectively teach online. Um, so what we're doing in the Signum, Mentor, the Signum Teacher Mentorship Program is we're offering one of our experienced Signum folks, uh, and we have experienced Signum folks who have some background teaching, not just in higher education, but in secondary ed and primary ed as well, um, so that some of those folks can kind of come alongside either individual teachers or a group of teachers like maybe you know, the staff of a private school or the, you know, a department at a university or something like that and say, okay, let's talk about your curriculum. Let's talk about your, your, your plans and your teaching goals and let's discuss what you can do. How can you best, you know, given the tools that you have available to you and what you're going to be comfortable doing, how can you most effectively convert that uh, into an online delivery and using different uh, different mechanisms and channels of online delivery in order to to uh, you know to do this with your students most effectively. Um, that kind of thinking is I, I, that's one of the th one of the gaps uh, that we've really seen in a lot of training or sometimes training that people are getting. Um, and again, I, you know, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody or criticize anybody. This is a weird situation, and people are being thrust into super you know, kind of weird uh, crisis mode here. We just want to help. Um, so yeah, as Tora Marthen says, here's how to start your car. Now get on the racetrack. Yeah, it is a little bit like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, the teacher mentorship program, we do have to charge a little bit for that because we have, you know, we're, we're offering a bunch of our people devoting a bunch of their time uh, to, to, to uh, you know, do live sessions with people and really help them work through this stuff. So, you know, we, 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 we need to be able to support, but we're offering this at cost. We're not making anything from this. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're 
looking to be able to pay uh, something to our people for the time that they're de uh, devoting to this, but we're trying to charge as little as possible, both for individuals and for groups. Uh, groups are limited to 50 people. Uh, so, I mean, if you've got, if you're like part of a big school or, or even a, a, a whole school district who would really, you know, like feels like they need help, um, you know, in multiple schools, we can do this. We we can help. We can. And this is it's a simple program. Just to come in and offer some advice and make some suggestions, and we'll do a follow up visit as well. Um, be able to answer questions and and just kind of help people get more comfortable with the plan of what to do and how to deliver your content effectively online. That's the um, that's the purpose of the Signum Teacher Mentorship Program. It's just a way in which we at Signum, knowing that this is a world we're comfortable in and everyone else is jumping into it, not not being comfortable, not really signing up for that, you know, so we, we just want to help uh, uh, however we can. So um, I just, I strongly recommend, um, you can send an email if you just have questions, if you're involved, if you're, if you're a teacher, if you are connected with a school, if you're, you know, an administrator, if you want to send an administrator or a teacher or a department chair or somebody, uh, principal, uh, to our program to get more information, have them send an email or you can send an email to mentor at signumu.org. Uh, and we can, you know, answer questions and, and try to, uh, try to connect folks. We're ready to respond pretty quickly to this. We have people who can jump in pretty much right away. Um, uh, because again, we know this is a, a kind of an emergent situation that is already unfolding. My own kids were, uh, were both of them in separate rooms doing, um, um, uh, doing their, uh, online, uh, courses today for the first time through their school, uh, which is off this week for the first time, uh, on, as my son Matthias says, coronacation. Uh, but, um, anyway, they, they, um, uh, it was it was kind of a, a fun <laughs> sort of family bonding moment. I'm sitting at my laptop doing Signum stuff, and they're sitting at their laptops upstairs doing uh, uh, during, doing live education. And I'm like, ah, you know, it's like a you know one big happy online ed family here today. Um, <laughs> but anyhow, um, so. Okay. Yeah. You know, Tony, it's a really interesting question, uh, how this will affect the view of online education in the long term. I will be fascinated to see this. Um, my focus right now was just trying to help everybody get through things in the short term. Um, but I have to imagine there are going to be some pretty long term consequences to that. I don't know what they are, um, but I'm excited to see, uh, you know, um, yeah, I'm very I'm very interested to see uh, what will come of it. Um, I th in the end, I, I, I feel confident it's going to be a really good thing. Um, and I'm excited for people to begin to sort of to see how possible the kind of stuff that we've been advocating for a long time is. Some people have asked me, like, are you worried that, like, people are going to start doing what you're doing? Heck no. I wish way more people would do what we're doing. Uh, you know, Signum has never been a plan to be a monopoly nationwide or worldwide. Uh, we would love for lots of other people to do what we're doing. Then people wouldn't look at us like we're freaks. Um, but anyway, um, so... We will uh, we will see. One of the things, actually, my m one of my other hopes is that this is something that will really accelerate the uh, the additional support, um, more resources being put into the online infrastructure, uh, basically, you know, nationwide. I, that would be, I think, a really good outcome of this. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, 
Yeah, exactly, Aldasi. We do not intend to be one online university to rule them all. That has really never been the Signum vision, I gotta tell ya. Um, absolutely. Um, okay. Uh, I, th- I think that is all of the announcements that I have to make. As I said, lots of... Uh, Lots of meaty stuff tonight, um, and I don't want to get too far just kind of chatting about stuff, but th- this is important stuff, and in particular, I wanted to draw people's attention to the mentorship program and explain that, because this is a, a very important and sort of relevant thing. Please do direct folks uh, to it. Again, we're not trying, you know, I, 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 was, I was really leery attaching prices to this was sort of fantasizing about offering it for free. I know we can't cause I can't afford to invest everybody, all of our people's time for free, but um, just trying to price it as low as possible because I, we don't want to make a profit off of folks in these, in this time right now. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we just really would love to be able to help as many people as possible. Okay. Let's, um, yeah, I'm totally not playing Anatar here, Mad Violinist. Absolutely not. That's not at all what's that's exactly what's not happening. Alright. Let us get back to the text then after an unusually long set of announcements tonight. Okay. Um So we are prepared. Are you prepared for our first real eye opener? I guess Boromir's already gotten an eye opener, uh, right? Finding out that uh, 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 Isildur kept the ring, right? That was his eye opener. Um, but um, we're about to get our first really big one, right? Uh, right away. But first, it's time to go back to the poem. Um, thank you guys for. Uh, coming along with me in my voyage of poetic discovery at the end of last week's session, uh, because I last, last week, not only in last week's live session, not only did I learn things about this poem that I had never understood before, right? Not only did I come to a new understanding of this, of the structure of this poem um, that I had never had in my life, but I actually had a kind of epiphany about Tolkien's poetry as a whole that I had never really, I, 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 it had been kind of floating around, but I'd never really fully grasped onto it before. Um, what I'm talking about is about the, the metrical structure. So, the way in which we were looking at, uh, and I'm thinking, of course, especially of the the odd lines uh, in this uh, in this verse, the way in which he has this structure, which is irregular in a pure metrical sense, right? It's in the sense that it's it's not like iambic tetrameter, it's not trochaic, it's not even it's not it's it doesn't fit any of the meters, right? And you could call it one, right? You could you could semi arbitrarily call it like iambic with a whole bunch of variations, right? But that's... I've never felt that that was a very useful... that that's a very useful way to talk about poems. Um, uh, just to, 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 to speak only of, like, variations from the meter, as if the meter is some kind of rule or law, which, like, the poet needs an excuse to break or you know, like it needs to be like given, 
you know, warnings, if not actual citations for breaking those rules. Um, that's not how poetics works. That's not how poems work. Uh, but anyway, it was the way in which we, um, the way in which we kind of came to this, you know, the, the, having seen the consistency of it, right? Uh, it, what those lines do is exactly not deviate from a norm. They, in fact, meticulously adhere to a norm. The key thing to understand, the key thing that I had never really fully grasped is how creative Tolkien is willing to get in establishing his own norm, right? There are some ways in which I'd already seen this, right, and kind of talked about this. For instance, you may remember back when we were looking at Tom Bombadil's verse, which, in retrospect, doesn't it seem like we really rushed through a lot of Tom Bombadil's poetry? I'm just saying. But anyhow, um, when we were looking at Tom Bombadil's poetry, we were already uh, noticing things like, okay, the basic pattern of Tom Bombadil's verse is trochaic hexameter, but there is a standard deviation, right? Uh, to, to accidentally use a statistical term, which I don't intend to be statistical at all. Um, that is to say, so if you remember the, like the classic Tom Bombadil line, right? Ho Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo. Um, that beginning, where it starts with that spondaic foot, right? Ho Tom Bombadil. Right. Um, and it, it, it gets into its trochaic feel by the like second foot. Right. But it always starts with those repeated stresses. Ho, Tom, Bombadil. Um, uh, that you can call it a substitution if you like. You can call that a deviation from trochaic hexameter if you want. But why should you? Right. Because it's not just a deviation. It's, in fact, developing a new rule. Right. Um, it is, in fact, taking trochaic hexameter as a starting point, almost as like a kind of blank canvas, right? Uh, and developing a completely unique line structure, but which becomes a very standardized line structure, which he adheres to fairly closely and sometimes deviates from in some ways. But, but again, it's not like there is this pure thing out there called trochaic hexameter, which he's deviating from in every single line. No, every single line is establishing that new rule. Anyway, um, uh, so <laughs> Tora Marthen, you're right. In Tom Bombadil's poetry, each, the poetic, each poetic line really does belong only to itself, right? And it has no master. Um, the point is looking now I'm going to be really interested to be looking as we continue through the rest of Tolkien's verse and through here to see how many times we can see similar structures like this. How many times have the rhythm of Tolkien's lines eluded me, not because I can't hear it, but because I'm trying to fit it into a default standardized thing. I'm trying to ask myself the question, okay, is this iambic tetrameter or is it not, right? Is this iambic tetrameter or is it just messed up, right? When in fact what it is, is a new and unique line structure that Tolkien has created for that, right? For that poem. And that's what we see here, right? Seek for the sword that was broken is, well, actually that's the one with the deviation, right? There shall be counsels taken. There shall be shown a token, 
for Isildur's bane shall waken. Um, those are the things that are that that make that really. Those 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 lines are very consistent. They're not deviations. They are a consistent norm, right? And they alternate with that regular iambic pattern in Imladris it dwells. Uh, that doom is near at hand, and the halfling forth shall stand. With, of course, the one exception, as we discussed, of stronger than Morgul spells, which doesn't fit at all the iambic pattern. But, of course, when we looked at it more closely, what we discovered was it almost perfectly fits the pattern. It's only slightly altered from the pattern of the odds, uh, so that we have, it creates that sort of triplet in the middle, in lines three, four, and five, uh, out of the eight of this poem. In other words, right there at the sort of pivot point in the center of this poem, those three lines in a row that have that same rhythm instead of alternating, right? Okay, so that's as far as we got last time, which was, to me, totally mind-blowing. And I'm telling you, I'm going to be looking back at this, I, this that, that, that session last Tuesday will be like a turning point in my career, right? Seriously, every time we talk about Tolkien's poetry for the next 20 years or however long it takes us to get through The Lord of the Rings, I'm going to be thinking back uh, to last Tuesday's session. That's how important that session was. So thank you guys for uh, coming along with me on that because that was really fun discovery. But having spent all of our time talking about the rhythm and how fruitfully last week, um, we need to think about a couple other things about this poem. <laughs> like, for instance, what's it about? We didn't really talk about that. We didn't get so far as the content of the poem. Indeed, we didn't even get um, uh, we didn't even get so far as the um, uh, as the rhyme scheme and the sort of the rest of the structural elements of the poem, which I want to do which I want to do first. Tony says, is this on a par with a realization about Trotter and the Lay of Lathian? Uh, no, well, no, it's, a, it's different. It's a different guy. This is a sort of a technical thing. Like, I now have a different insight into how Tolkien's metrics work, right? How his prosody works in his poetry as a whole. So that's kind of a really big deal. It's not the same sort of, like, that, that realization with Trotter and the Lay of Lathian was, like, the moment, like, finding the sentence, like, identifying the sentence in which Tolkien's whole, like, life and, like, creative project and, and really his entire life changed in the course of the writing of that one sentence. Like, that was kind of a big deal. Uh, still just a theory of mine, but I'm pretty confident in it, actually. Um, so, um, anyhow. Okay. So, uh... Okay, good. So Jordan is asking, I know it has come up that hyphenated words are literal translations of other words. That's a theory, right? That's sort of a, that's, that's a theory. Sparrow Alden's theory. Uh, Signum student and faculty member, which I'm a big fan of. Um, so would it be useful to consider if the different meters are expressions of translated poetry? So... Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that um, the different kind of feel of the different... I mean, my hope is that by the time we get to the end of exploring the Lord of the Rings, um, you will be able to sort of tell by the feel the kind of cultural influences behind a poem. So, like, you'll be able to recognize Hobbit poetry, 
just by hearing it, right, without even really listening to, without even really hearing the, you know, thinking about the content or recognizing the content, just from the sound of it, you'll be able to tell, yeah, that's Hobbit poetry, right? Oh, that's Elvish poetry. Um, and therefore, be able to see, like, crossovers, like, when is a Hobbit writing a poem under Elvish influence and stuff? Um, uh, so anyway, so that's that's something. But at the same time, uh, so that's my yes answer, my no answer saying both no and yes is I don't think it's appropriate I don't think there's any reason really to think of these poems as translations like can we find artifacts of the original languages from which these things are modern English translations Um, no in that sense I would say no primarily because they are far too um, uh, they are far too um, uh intricately structured for that, right? Um, that is to say, when you're translating a poem, you can't do what he does. Like, you can't make a poem like um, the Baron and Luthien, like Strider's Baron and Luthien poem, as like a line-by-line translation of a poem from a different language. Like, you just, you can't, you can't do it. Just like you can't really do justice, um, you know, to Dante's Terza Rima in The Divine Comedy, when you translate it into English. That's why I really dislike rhyming translations of Dante, uh, because like you just like, it doesn't work the same. Like it, you, you can't do it the same. Um, you have to make a choice when you translate poetry. You have to, I mean, you always have to make, cho- you know, hard choices when you do translations at all. But with poetry, you have to make particularly brutal choices, right? Um, that is you have, you can, you can try to convey, something of what the poet is doing in the other language, right? Like that is like the word play and the, 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 you know, something of the kind of overall structure, but you're not going to really be able to render in the, in the second language that you're translating it into. You're not going to be able to do the same poetic, right? You can't just do the same poetry. Um, Cause if you do, again, so take the example that I already gave people who try to do English rhyming translations of Dante. Well, if you're reaching for English rhymes, especially if you're trying to do Terza Rima, which fortunately most English translations do not attempt. Um, but, but say you're going, you're doing some kind of, you know, halfway mark, which a lot of them do. And you're translating into rhyming couplets or rhyming quatrains or something like that, which again is a pale, pale imitation of Terza Rima to begin with. Um, and again, why even go a halfway measure like that? It seems to me pointless. But anyway, if you're doing that, right. Um, and you're having to reach for English rhymes to make your lines work. There's no way you're going to be able to stay true to the words that Dante chose to the to like the sense of the lines, right? Because you're going to have to deviate from that sense in order to find, um, you know, English rhymes, right? In order to make the rhyme scheme to to work your rhyme scheme, right? So you're either you either have to move really far away from the sense of the poem and try to parallel the poetics, or you have to just abandon the poetics and try to be as true as you can be to the sense. That's it's just hard, right? Um, really, really. Uh, again, it's it, to me, it's like the most exaggerated example of the kinds of horrible, really difficult choices you always have to make when you're translating from one language to another. Um, so, none of the poems really, I say none, that's a big statement. I do not believe that any of the poems that we read in The Lord of the Rings show any evidence 
that Tolkien is trying to imitate that, right? That Tolkien is trying to imitate a poem which is only a translation. Sometimes he says that, right? Like, in the frame. Um, that, like, this is like an echo of their song. Remember, you know, lines, references, allusions like that? But it's a little bit disingenuous because it's not just an echo, right? I mean, it might be an echo in the sense that it's not nearly as good as the Elvish original, right? But it is certainly a poetic creation of its own and not just a translation of the other. Um, so, anyway. Uh, yeah, Mad Violinist exactly says uh, he's reminded of that odd translation of the hymn to Elbereth that Christopher Tolkien provided. Mad Violinist, it's a perfect illustration, right? We looked at that. Um, that was a, a perfect example of a translation which is trying to stay true to the sense Right? It's trying to give you the sense of the word. What do the words of this poem mean? But of course, almost all of the poetics of the Elvish were completely lost in that translation. Right? And again, that's one of the, you know, one of the two sort of honest ways right, to translate a poem. Um, but, um, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, Good. Um, oh, sorry, Angrist. I, I shouldn't talk too much about Dante without explaining it. Terza rima uh, is the rhyming structure of, Don, of the Divine Comedy. It's, it's really intricate. How it works is that uh, he has end rhymes that are in sets of three lines. Um, every other line in sets of threes are rhymed, but then but they're interlaced, right? Um, so it's like A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D, C, you know, you, you see what I mean? So it's, it's all like all three line rhymes and they're all interlocked. Uh, um, and, uh, and it's, it's, the structure of the divine comedy is just amazing. I mean, it's one of the most gorgeously and intricately designed works of literary art in the history of mankind that I know of, um, Anyway, so that's what Terza Rima is, and it's almost impossible to do in English because, well, let's face it, end rhymes are easier in Italian. <laughs> They're easier to come by in Italian than they are in English. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, and I'm not just saying like, well, it was a piece of cake, what Dante did. Not trying to take anything away from the amazing accomplishment uh, uh, of uh, Dante's verse. I'm just saying it's oh, it's it's uh, would be way harder uh, in uh uh, in in English, uh, bet Eminem could do it. But anyway, it's really really hard. Okay. Anyhow, so um, well, let's get back to this poem. So let's think about the having established the rhythm and seeing some of the structural cues of this poem from that rhythmical structure that we were already looking at. Let's take one step back. Right, and look at the rhyme scheme. Broken dwells, taken spells, token hand, waken stand. Okay. That's really cool. That is seriously cool. You notice, um, you notice, um, 
Okay. It at first it seems kind of simple, right? Um, like it sounds like an ABAB sort of structure, but it's not an ABAB structure. Um, dwells and spells hand and stand. Those are simple, right? So the even lines, the iambic lines, in Imladris it dwells, stronger than Morgul's spells. For Isildur's bane shall waken, and that, or sorry, and the halfling force shall stand, right? It does kind of look like, let's see, yeah, A, B, C, B, A, D, C, D. Yes, exactly. Um, broken and taken, at first, here, here's the thing. When you first read it, right, broken and taken, it, A, B, A, B is like the most basic rhyme structure in English poetry, right? I mean, you normally expect A, B, A, B, right? And it sounds like we're getting it. If all we had were those four lines, right? Seek for the sword that was broken. In Imladris it dwells. There shall be counsels taken, stronger than Morgul's spells. The strong B rhymes reinforce the idea, hey, dude, A, B, A, B, right? Okay, you're right, Tony. Rhyming couplets is right up there with ABAB as the, the, most, uh, uh, the most common rhyming uh, structure of English poetry. But, so it sounds at first like an ABAB structure, which just is kind of, yeah, exactly. It sounds like a slant rhyme, Angrist, right? That is to say, like, broken and taken. It's like, well, if you kind of squint, they kind of rhyme, right? So maybe it's just an imperfect rhyme in the A's, but it's ABAB. Right. But then you look at the second quatrain and it's clear that that is not the case. Right. Because we have not only the same apparently near rhyme made in the odd numbered lines in the second quatrain, but we also have the same near rhyme (laughs) repeated. Broken, taken, token, waken. Right. But wait, there's more. Not only is he repeating those, right? But he is echoing the same words, right? Token and taken, for instance, right? The fact that token and taken are almost juxtaposed. And where are token and taken? Right at either, and this is where we come back to our metrical observations, right? Remember that three-line block at the middle, which is which stands out metrically because of line four, right? Remember the way that line four does not fit the iambic structure of the other even lines? Making lines three, four, and five into that three-line set, right? Which is sort of that special set in the middle that separates the beginning from the end of the poem, right? And taken and token are the rhymes in lines three and five, right? They frame that central section, meaning that it seems to have, it seems to be, okay, my first impulse is to say that it forms almost like a pivot at the middle of the poem, right? Taken to token, right? Um, We take that, the A rhyme, which is almost exactly like the C rhyme. So just to clarify the letters and everything. Sometimes talking about A, B, C, and D can get really, really hard to follow. Um, it's a little easier to do in print than it is to do in oral discussion, but we'll, we'll try to, we'll try to keep it, um, um, uh, we'll try to keep that 
we'll try to keep that clear uh, as clear as we can. So the C, the B rhyme is dwells and spells, right? The D rhyme is hand and stand. Those are the simple ones, right? Um, Yeah, wait, hang on a second. Matt, I think you're missing a letter there. There are only seven letters in your in your last in your last one there. Anyway, so hang on a second. So the B rhyme is dwells and spells. The D rhyme is hand and stand. The so it's the A rhymes and the C rhymes that he's really playing around with there, right? Broken, taken, A is A, broken is A, taken is C, right? Token is A, waken is C. So I want to call Morgul spells the kind of pivot of the poem, right? But that doesn't exactly work, right? Because it's not symmetrical. Um, it's repeated, right? The A and C rhymes, the A and C rhymes are the same. Uh, that is, they have the same they have the same structure, um, just substituting the D, the D couplet and or not, it's not a couplet, the, the D rhyme and the C rhyme, right? Um, a, B, C, B, A, D, C, D, right? So if it were, if you had the A rhyme and the C rhyme and then the C rhyme and then the A rhyme, then it would be symmetrical. And then we would have really a pivot. It would be, uh, it would be, do you see what I mean? That's why I'm resisting calling that a pivot. It's my first impulse, but it's not right because it's not in fact the structure. You following me there? Okay. Um, yeah, there is alliteration connecting token and taken. And again, it's more than alliteration. I mean, they're the same word, except for the one vowel change, which makes the entire difference between the A rhyme and the C rhyme in the first place, right? So we have a situation where he's... Imagine the A and C rhymes were just totally separate, right? Like, imagine the, you know, the the A rhyme was like, you know... Uh, dream and scream and the you know the c rhyme was like you know straight and wait or something i get like totally unrelated um you know words that rhyme with each other but totally unrelated each to the other right then this would still be a kind of an, inter an interesting structure the way that he sort of interlaces the a and the c rhymes in the way that he does but it would that would just be kind of a footnote it'd be like oh he's doing a funky little thing with the A and C rhymes there. Instead of just doing a boring old A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, two quatrains, ye old standard two quatrains, right? He's getting a little jiggy with it, right? A, B, C, B, A, D, C, D, right? Instead of doing, instead of just separating them out. But what he's doing is far more intricate than that, right? Because the A rhymes and the C rhymes are almost exactly the same. They're like variants, of each other. The Oaken, Aiken, uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to get closer than that. The long vowel followed by K-E-N, right? That's not a super common phoneme in 
or morpheme, technically, I suppose, uh, in English, right? It's not like there are, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of words that end like that, right? Um, so he's chosen a, a morpheme, um, which is unusual, right? And therefore, the closeness of this rhyme is something that's really... Um, uh, is something that's really noticeable, right? Uh, okay. And like I said, it's it, it, it's hard to imagine it being closer because both of them, I mean, if you look at the four words, broken, taken, token, waken, uh, the, the rhymes, the A rhymes and the C rhymes are perfect rhymes. There's nothing slant about any of them. Right. The spelling is exactly the same. The only and, and the vowels are even they're both long vowels. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, anyway. So, yeah. No, sorry. Music. I'm not I'm not speaking about I, I, I'm not talking about the roots of the words or anything. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm being really fast and loose. All I'm talking about is combination of sounds. OK. Um the the collection of sounds which is uh o or a you know the single long vowel um really you know open long vowel and then k e n that's what i'm talking about um all i'm all i'm thinking about here is just is 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 the 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 oral effect of these words okay Now, here is, yes, the phonological pattern is precisely what I'm interested in here in looking at the rhyme scheme. And having noticed that, having first noticed that the rhyme scheme looks like it's normal, but then that it's, that it's normal, just not very good. And then realizing, no, not only is it not, not very good, it's in fact really good. It's really intricate, right? Having first noticed that, and then taking a closer look at this, I now feel like, okay, wait, something else is going on here. Now, big old take-home lesson here. This is where, and whether it's, whether this is uh, in student papers that I have read over the years, or whether this is in, to be honest, scholarly articles that I have read over the years, one of my biggest pet peeves as a literature person is that often there is a there is a there is a tendency right once you notice something like this once you observe a pattern right and you're like hey something interesting is going on here right there is the temptation to stomp there and kind of celebrate the fact that you've noticed that something cool is happening right which is i mean absolutely do that right pat yourself all over the back and get excited about the fact that you found something interesting going on but you can't stop there right um because you now have to answer the so what question so what so what what's the effect of this thing what conclusions can we draw from this fact so so in other words what i want to do is how does it work, right? How does it work? 
in the context of the poem. Now, as a couple of you are already doing, let's expand out. I've been focusing on the end rhymes because that's where the central structure of the, 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 the central phonological structure of the poem comes in. There's always that emphasis on the end rhyme in a rhyming poem like this. But of course, as we've seen in many other instances, we know that Tolkien likes to play with the sounds of vowels, consonants, and even of whole words in other ways, whether it be internal rhyme or whether it be alliteration or, or other kinds of echoes, right? So let's look at that as a couple of you are already suggesting. One of you, uh, Bruce, was it you? I think maybe a couple people were pointing out that there's a fair bit of alliteration going on here, right? Let's, let me read it through again and listen to the consonants, right? Ignore the vowels. Listen to the consonants. Seek for the sword that was broken. In Imladris it dwells. There shall be counsels taken, stronger than Morgul spells. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, for Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. Okay, we definitely get some alliteration, right? Um, shall be shown, seek for the sword, of course, uh, being the, the, the sort of biggest and most, uh, most clear when we do get lots of S, lots of S, Katriana, you're certainly right. Um, <clears throat> yes. Um, I would not say that alliteration is a major feature of this poem. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like the um, the poem really sort of hinges on. And I shouldn't use hinge. That's a very specific thing. It doesn't it doesn't feel like it really dwells on alliteration primarily. Um, but we do. um uh, it certainly features in some places. And I would say as uh, so one of you was just pointing to, yeah, Brandon, um, uh, the repetition, not just, you know, sound echoes, right? But the actual repetition of there shall be, there shall be, as we were looking at, as we were noticing, of course, when we were looking at the meter, um, uh, certainly in some ways that kind of, that kind of uh, overshadows the alliteration, I think. Right? Again, we get it in some places, but especially there shall be shown a token. Um, there shall be shown um, is alliterative, and we can we can we can hear that, we can feel that, but not very strongly. Again, I don't think it's a major feature for two reasons. One, because again, to me, it's 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 strongly overshadowed by the fact that we're the the repetition of the there shall be. That's the thing when I hear that line. That's what I notice is the repetition. Um, the alliteration feels very secondary to that. And the second thing is the meter, right? Shall is not emphasized. Shall is an unstressed syllable in that line. There shall be shown a token. Shown is emphasized. And there is not, right? Unlike seek for the sword, that is an alliteration that the line emphasizes because seek and sword are both stressed syllables in that line. Whereas again, shall and shown are not both stressed syllables. Shall is one of the short, quick, it's one of those eighth note syllables, uh, uh, Steve, that you were noticing last time. Um, so yeah, it's it, that's why, again, it feels to me, I'm not saying there's not alliteration there, there obviously is, but I think it's secondary to that line. So I'm not convinced... Um, that, uh, yeah, Mad Violinist, there absolutely is emphasized. There, that's, that's the structure. There shall be shown a token. Um, uh, yeah, so if we look at the, um, um, if we look at the, the, 
this the, the this is why I always start with the the meter. Why I always start with the stress um, because it, it it really once you really make sure that you master the way that this should sound, even to the extent of guiding our pronunciation of names and things, even as we discussed last time, to the extent of pronouncing names in ways in which the poem is asking us to pronounce them in ways which deviate from how the appendix is asking us to pronounce them. Um, And by the way, I think that if you think that unlikely or if you think that uncharacteristic of Tolkien, you're fooling yourself. <laughs> Tolkien loved exceptions to rules and was often wildly inconsistent with his own rules. Um, there's like the precept that he hands down and then there's what he actually does. Right. Uh, and that he would be inconsistent from one place to another, even within the, the work about how a name is supposed to be pronounced does not seem to me in the least bit uncharacteristic or unlikely. Uh, but um, uh, anyway, okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, all right. Um, okay, good. Fourth Dauntless says, I'm not quite sure what to do with it, but the rhyme scheme connects the sword that was broken with the shown token, the ring. It also connects doom near at hand with the halfling who shall stand. Yes, this is one of the things that I think is not it's not always true, but it's one of the things that I do like to look at. Um, That is to say, what are some of the links? I like to do this in alliterative poems as well. Right. Um, When you are listening to a rhyming poem or when you're listening to an alliterative poem, or again, when you're saying it out loud and listening to yourself, um, one of the effects which I think I find an inevitable effect is you make connections. Those those links, those aural links, right? The rhyming syllables, uh, the alliterative sounds, those things necessarily in your brain establish connections between those words, right? You just, you, you can't help it. Um, I cannot help but... Pair dwells in spells. So the poem has established some kind of link, right? It might bear the weight of further investigation, thinking about the content of the poem, to look at what is saying about what is being said about Imladris in line two and what is being said about Morgul in line four. Maybe we can, you know, maybe we're supposed, you know, if we if we follow the lead of the connection that the rhyme establishes. Maybe we find something, maybe we don't. Sometimes we need to kind of let it go and not force it, right? Um, But that a connection is established is inescapable. The rhyme establishes a connection between dwells and spells, between hand and stand. So in that sense, um, uh, in that sense, uh, who was saying that? Fourth Dauntless, yeah. Um, In that sense, Fourth Dauntless, that's one of the things that I that I do like to do when I'm thinking about the rhyme scheme and and what it how it informs our understanding of the poem um, is to be looking at. So let's think about that in the context of this peculiar echoed structure, the AC rhymes, the broken token, and and the intimacy of the connection between them. <clears throat> broken, taken, token, waken, right. Um, 
because of the, again, idiosyncratic, unusual, and therefore slightly attention-gathering, um, but also very close link among all four of those words, right? But again, remember, it's not a symmetrical pattern. It's a repeated pattern. A-C-A-C, not A-C-C-A, right? Um, and this this has... I. I lest it's I'll try to explain lest it seem like I'm just perseverating on that point to me that that makes a really big difference as far as how I am being invited as a hearer to to perceive the structure of the poem if it were ACCA uh, in those four lines in those in those even or odd numbered lines um, it invites me to look at the structure of the whole poem and how it pivot and I it, it would make me go to the center Right. What line is in the middle? What's happening in the middle? And how does that go outwards uh, to the rest of the poem? Because a symmetrical structure like that, to me, it always points back to the middle. Right. This is the kind of thing. If you like this kind of thing, read some John Donne. In fact, read almost any 17th century English poem. Uh, well, any good one. Uh, the, the metaphysical poets loved this action. Right. Um, it's almost always worthwhile to find the central line of a metaphysical poem because there's, they, they love the sort of central pivot thing and returning to the beginning of the poem and the last line of the poem and stuff, both structurally and, uh, and, uh, and linguistically, uh, uh, fun stuff. Um, that's the kind of direction I would feel pointed if it went ACCA, but it's not right. Um, uh, it's AC, AC, which means we have an echo. We have a repeated structure. So the invitation that that structure administers to me as a reader, right, is in, instead of looking to the center and how it works outwards, instead I want to look at the first half and the second half, right, and how those two things parallel each other and how they sort of reflect each other, okay? Broken, taken, token, waken. Um, the first half. So, and, and uh, as you guys were saying, broken is about the, so we're talking about the sword and the council. And then we're talking about the ring, the token, right? Um, and the doom, right? So we've got the sword and the discussion, right? The sword and the decision, We've got the ring and the action, right? And the outcome. And that's, that's, um, that's parallel, right? That certainly seems to bear out <clears throat> that invitation to looking for a parallel echoed structure uh, that the rhyme scheme seems to me to suggest. Um, but again, now I got to come back to the closeness of the A and C rhymes. That that parallel structure again would have been suggested if they were the sort of totally random, disconnected rhymes that I, you know, gave random examples of before, right? Um, uh, here, we've got to come back to that the closeness of that link, right? The taken token link, right? Um, and that's where. Again, I feel like there's a pivot, and this is borne out by the metrical structure. That three, four, five, that lines three, four, and five, the way that those do form this sort of solid middle of the poem, and how it shifts from taken to token uh, at the beginning. The councils, the councils that are going to be taken, 
are all it's connect there shall be shown a token right there shall be councils taken there shall be shown a token um it's the that repetition which is so audible so much more audible uh in my ear than the alliteration right um that's the core of this poem and of course that makes perfect sense what is the what's the cliss notes version of this poem right if we had to do a like tiny little summary like a very brief summary of this like a paraphrase of the message being delivered to gondor in this poem uh one possible candidate for that would be go to the council of elrond right i mean boromir's presence here his arrival on the morning of the council right his presence at this council seems to be what is indicated right um the whole core, that whole, that central core, that, 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 that central unit of the poem, lines three through five, are all about the council. That's where we get the repetition. There shall be councils taken. There shall be shown a token. Right. Um, with the callback through token and broken back to the sword. Right. Um, now, great question, Matt. Um, Matt says, uh, points out that the, the rhyme raises the question, which is the token, the one ring or the sword that shall be reforged? Um, yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's, uh, you could theoretically see that either way, right? It is possible to think that the token, I mean, the sword that was broken is also a token that, do, that doom is near at hand, right? Um, it certainly means that for Aragorn, Except, of course, Matt, we know, and this is a little bit unfair because it's not yet really been revealed in the text, right? Um, but from what we know, having read the whole book before, we know for in Aragorn's mind it works the other way around, right? The reforging of the sword is not a token that doom is near at hand. The reforging of the sword is a response to the perception that doom is near at hand, right? Um, it's not a sign of doom. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's not a cause. It's an effect. Right. Um, but, um, but yeah. And Flamifer, that's a great point. Of course, I'm focusing on the A and C rhymes. And so I'm focusing on taken and token, but of course, Flamifer, you're right to remind us of that central line stronger than Morgul spells. Right. Um, and that, of course, as you point out, Flamifer is exactly what Boromir is looking for. Boromir just made a speech. Right. About the power of Morgul spells, about this power that they have not seen before um, and that none of their warriors could stand against and everything. Right. They're in trouble. They need help, not just because of the alliances in the east and stuff. Right. But again, remember, Boromir's own emphasis was we've got Morgul issues going on down here. Right. Um, yes, we're at a military disadvantage, but, you know, like whatever, that's we're not going to complain about that. The issue that we have, the thing which I suppose and imagine that motivated Boromir, captain general of Gondor, to abandon the army and go on a hundred and day, 110 day journey instead um, is uh, um, that that is um, uh it's because of the Morgul spells, right? Uh, this is not the, their problem. The problem, the military problem, military and otherwise problem that Gondor is facing is not something that can be solved by military leadership because it's clear 
no amount of military leadership is going to help them against the Morgul spells that they're facing. So yes, that is the center of their need, right? And that line is central, flanked by, there shall be councils taken, there shall be shown a, sh- there shall be shown a token, right? Um, yeah, Fourth Dauntless says, is it possible that Boromir heard Morgul, that is, you know, when he has the dream, that he heard Morgul with a lowercase m, uh, they know there's black magic involved. That is, the word Morgul just means sorcery, right? Black magic uh, to Boromir. Um, uh, do they know that their problem is actually Nazgul-related? Um, not necessarily, I don't think. Um, would not be at all surprised if Denethor knew that. Uh, you know, is Boromir exaggerating when he calls him master, you know, you know, uh, you know, wise in the lore of Gondor? Maybe a little bit, but probably not much. He's a he's a uh, an intelligent and scholarly chap. Uh, Faramir doesn't take after strangers, um, so I wouldn't be surprised at all if Denethor had an inkling that uh, that one of the Nazgul was in fact what they were facing. Um, uh, on the you know when he heard the report uh, from his two sons and only heirs who stood on the rear guard of the bridge when they returned after he finished yelling at them for that, um, but. Um, anyway, so yes, yes, for Thonless, I do think it's possible that he's, I don't know if it needs to be lowercase, but yes, that he's, it's, we should not be so quick just to think of Minas Morgul specifically, like politically, like it's the Lord of the Ringwraiths that Boromir is alluding to, or that Boromir here is being alluded to. Um, Morgul spells would doubtless be associated with Minas Morgul but they probably mean that that kind of magic, which clearly they would have called what they encountered there at the bridge. Um, but, uh, okay. Um, yes, and Tim, you're absolutely right that um, Doom is... Contra- so we've got the, the councils that are going to be taken are going to be stronger than Morgul's spells, Right. Do you want something that can help you overcome, right? Uh, you know, you 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 need resources to help Gondor in in this fight against the Morgul spells, right? The 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 sorcery that's being brought against its armies on the battlefield right now. Um, the antidote or the thing that's going to be stronger than that, that's going to help you overcome, is counterintuitively the councils that shall be taken in Imladris, right? Um, okay. But yes, also, there shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand. Um, and the doom... Uh, uh, that doom is near at hand does, of course, suggest doom not as fatalism, but as judgment, right? Uh, because you're right, Tim, that the, the sort of the parallel there is to the councils, Right. Um, the the echo, the repetition, is about the councils, not about death, destruction, and the final downfall, you know, the inevitable final downfall of Gondor, right? It does not seem to be at least not that sort, not necessarily that sort of doom, right? But of course, it's certainly easy to read the line that way. Um, I mean, if you tell somebody who is the captain of an army trying to defend a city b- 
fighting an over an apparently overwhelming foe with powers that you can't even oppose, and you give them a prophetic dream that says doom is near at hand, they can be forgiven for thinking you're predicting the downfall of their city and culture, right? It really does sound like that. But Tim, I absolutely agree with you. We should also definitely be hearing doom as doom is near at hand. Like it's also saying it's decision time, right? The councils that will be taken in Imladris will be stronger than Morgul spells. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, and yes, Angrist, of course, uh, um, Elrond emphasizes that pretty clearly, of course, during the council, talking about deeming a doom. Um, okay. Um, and yes, Fourth Dauntless, it can also mean fate, but not, uh, catastrophically, like that, that the council's taken can alter the fate of Gondor. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. There's a close connection between doom of the one kind and doom of the other, right? They're, it's not only a play on words. The two things are, in fact, linked. Um, okay. Uh, Rian, and the fact that it's capital, capitalized in the poem does suggest that it's a specific doom, that doom is near and hand. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it is only one doom, right? Um, but I don't know. That is to say, it can still have more than one sense, I think, even though it's capitalized. Um, I don't know. I can see the capitalization working in a couple different ways, actually. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Structure. So if we follow the lead there to look at the lead of the rhyme scheme, that is, and look at the poem in two echoing halves, but closely linked together, um, echoing each other or paralleling each other, right? Seek for the sword that was broken in Imladris it dwells. We have, through the, both the meter and the rhyme scheme, we have, we can see a pretty clear structure of the poem, right? Um, that is, the first two lines form part one of the poem. The next three lines, lines three through five, form part two of the poem. And then lines six through eight form part three of the poem, right? We have the command, right? The first two lines are also connected by the fact that they are the only clause that's in the imperative mood, right? Seek for the sword that was broken, FYI, in Imladris it dwells, Right? Then we've got the center piece where it shifts to the indicative mood, just telling us things, right? There shall be counsels taken. Notice uh, it's not just shifting to the imperative mood. It's also shifting to the future tense, right? Seek for the sword that was broken. In Imladris it dwells. Um, present tense, both of them, right? Imperative and indicative. The, in, in Imladris it dwells is an Im- an indicative add-on, right, to the imperative statement in the first line. Um, Then we stay in the indicative, but we shift to the future. There shall be counsels taken, stronger than Morgul's spells. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, for Isildur's bane shall waken 
and the halfling fourth shall stand. Um, now, here's an interesting thing. I said that lines six through eight, the last three lines, form a group, and they do. Um, structurally, metrically speaking, with the, from the rhythm of the lines, um, they very much stand out from those central three lines, and they echo the first two lines. Um, so it definitely sounds like a beginning and, a, and, and an end with a middle bit, right? But, um, but, uh, those last two lines are linked together to each other. Line seven and eight are linked together more closely than they're linked to line six. And that because, again, of the metrical cues. You'll remember that both of them are different from the models previously, right? They follow almost exactly the same structure as the odd and even line structures of the previous ones, but the difference is that little grace note at the beginning, which lays a special emphasis on the line. For Isildur's Bane Shall Waken. Remember, Isildur's Bane Shall Waken is exactly the same as the other lines. The Halfling Fourth Shall Stand is exactly the same as lines two and six, right? But both of them have that little added syllable at the beginning. In, so we, he does the same thing to both of those last two lines, a little grace note at the beginning. For Isildur's Bane Shall Waken, and the Halfling Fourth Shall Stand, right? laying that emphasis at the beginning of the line and therefore making those two lines both connect to each other, sound like each other in ways that they're separated from line six. The result of this, therefore, is that it makes line six into a kind of... I keep saying pivot. i got to get off that metaphor. Um, into a kind of transition, right? Um Well, maybe actually I should use the word pivot because I think that metaphor might be applicable for the first time uh, uh, to this line than any other time I've attempted to use that word uh, or that metaphor uh, tonight. Because on the one hand, it's connected, right? There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, right? You can't exactly separate those two lines, right? That doom is near at hand uh, is certainly the completion of that other idea. If you think of it not, not not thinking about the rhythm of the lines, not thinking about the rhyme scheme, but thinking only about the syntax of the lines, right? The last two lines are separated too. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand. That's one statement, right? For Isildur's bane shall waken and the halfling forth shall stand is another statement, right? So again, there, so there is a sort of a syntactic separation between lines six and seven and a syntactic connection between lines five and six, right? So again, six is connected to five through the syntax, through the structure of the sentences, but it's connected to seven and eight through the metrical structure, right? And also through the rhyme scheme with a handstand rhyme, right? That really strong D rhyme that we get at the end there. Um... Yeah, you're right, Gordy. It's almost as if you could put a colon after hand, right? That doom is near at hand, colon, for Isildur's bane shall waken, right? This is the reason for the doom, or this is what the doom is, right? Um, this is what the doom's going to look like, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, Belongsmond, it is almost like a bridge 
in a song. You know way more about songwriting and, and song structure than I do, so that metaphor is not going to be as meaningful to, uh, to me, I think, as it uh, is to you. But I can see that. I can see the way that it would work like that. Um, uh, okay, so... Ooh, Jordan, that's a really cool observation. Jordan points out that this poem speaks almost exclusively about inanimate objects or concepts. Um, uh, Isildur is named, uh, but only as uh, part of uh, part part of a name, the ring of uh, the name of the ring, uh, while the halfling uh, is the only living being mentioned explicitly. But no, you're right. Um, the halfling is, I think, really the primary emphasis there. Um, the sword that was broken and Isildur's bane, right, are both objects that are not even themselves being named, right? It's not saying the Ring of Power. It's not saying the Sword of Elendil or Narsil or something like that, right? Um, now, you're right, Bruce, that the halfling isn't named. It's still just by being called the halfling. It's also sort of more of an object. But it is following Jordan's idea, which I think is an important one. It's the only time a person is described doing anything, right? The whole tone of the poem is very, I don't want to say vague, but like, think about the kind of advice that your freshman English teacher might have given you in your writing, like don't use the passive voice, that kind of thing, right? Like, don't write sentences in which stuff just happens, right? You want to say who's doing what? That's exactly what this poem doesn't do. Right. Um, It doesn't give us specific information about who is doing what and why. It's just like there's a sword that was broken. It's in Imudris. Seek it for some reason. And I'm not telling you what it is or why you should seek it. There shall be councils taken. I councils will happen. Right. Again, it's notice it's using the passive uh, the passive voice there. Right. Councils are going to happen. Who's going to take them? I don't know. Right. They're going to be stronger than Morgul spells, but. You know, I'm not going to tell you who is the agent of those councils, right? Uh, also, a token is going to be shown by somebody, right? Um, that doom, some kind of doom deemed by somebody or doomed of something is going to be at hand at some point, right? Again, it's all, it's very, it's kind of distant. It's kind of, for Isildur's bane shall waken. That's a shift from the passive voice to the active voice, which is important here, right? Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. The halfling standing, that's Isildur's bane wakening and the halfling standing are the first two things that are doing anything, right? Dwells is a linking verb, right? It's not really a, it's not really a, I mean, I'm not trying to say that dwells isn't a perfectly respectable verb, but it's not exactly describing an action, right? Was broken, again, it's a, it's using the passive voice in the first line, too, right? Here I was talking about mood, but not about voice, right? Um, seek for the sword that was broken. A sword got broken by somebody somewhere. FYI, it's an imodris. Uh... Councils will be taken by somebody. Some token will be shown by somebody that some doom or other is going to happen sometime soonish. Um, then we have the two definite statements. 
For Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. And for Thoughtless, you're right. Seek is an active verb. Imperative, mood, active voice. Right? Um, this is not uh, let the sword be sought for. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, good. We begin and end with action. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I do think that the um, <laughs> dwells is a placid verb. Yes, it is. It is a placid verb. Um so uh, anyhow, that again, notice that that structure, that that particular piece of syntactic structure, the, the verb, the voices of the verbs that we were looking at, um, again, connect line seven and eight, right? Make line, the last two lines of the poem different, right? Special and special in a similar way, parallel to each other in a, in, in a similar, which is different, which is separated from the rest of them. But that brings me back to the fulcrum, to the pivot, that doom is near at hand, right? Which, again, as we were already discussing, in its content, right? Thinking of those two different meanings of the word doom, Tim, as you were raising before, the two different meanings of the word doom point in both of the two different directions, right? Doom is near at hand, the kind of doom that Boromir thinks it's talking about, right? Doom and destruction, the downfall of things, the change of the world, the end of the age, that's at hand, right? For Isildur's bane shall waken and the halfling forth shall stand. But doom is also at hand looking backwards in the other direction, right? There will be counsels taken. There shall be shown a token, right? Doom, decision, uh, the, the, the choices, the doom that must be deemed, the doom deemed that is going to be stronger than Morgul's spells, right? Those councils that are going to be stronger, that's also the doom, right? That is near at hand. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. So Mad Violence is saying, what if we, what if we see this poem as sort of a group of six lines and a group of two that are the culmination Again, in a sense, that's forced upon us both by syntax and by meter. Uh, right? Again, those last two lines stand stand apart in both of those ways. Uh, however, they um, they're not disconnected. We can't see the structure as six and two. I can't because hand and stand and waken and taken. Right. The rhyme scheme prevents us from detaching those last two. Um, uh, those, So it's it's not like. Sorry, first Dante, now Shakespeare. Um, it's not like the final couplet of a Shakespeare sonnet. Very brief explanation for those of you not familiar with the Shakespearean sonnet structure. A sonnet is a 14 line poem. The classic Shakespearean sonnet structure is three quatrains and a couplet. A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G, right? And so you've got those last two lines. You've got group of four lines, self-contained 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 group of two lines, separate at the end, not linked by rhyme to any of the lines that came before. And not only do they stand, do those last two lines traditionally in a Shakespearean sonnet stand aside uh, in rhyme scheme, but they do in structure as well. The last couplet of a Shakespearean sonnet often contains a turn 
which kind of shifts the into so like the first four lines the first uh, three quatrains are sort of a an elaborate setup essentially it's almost like a setup and a punchline that's a really poor uh and uh that comparison i think is literally a travesty but um uh technically but it 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 definitely um christopher what i'm saying is the way that those gg that couplet at the end of a Shakespearean sonnet really does kind of step aside, not only stand aside from the rest of the poem, but kind of reflect back on the poem and transform the poem in retrospect, right? Um, That's what I don't see happening here. I, I mean, there is a kind of movement. Again, those two lines are definitely separated in some ways, but not in all ways, right? Um, Again, they are linked back. They are a fulfillment of that. They're part of that structure, of the four of the four line repetition marked by the rhyme scheme, right? Uh, the, uh, the, the AB, the ABCB, ADCD structure, um, makes those two lines not stand aside to the same extent. So for that reason, I can't see considering it as a, just as a simple six, two structure, uh, because that doesn't, that doesn't feel like it fits. Um, but, um, yeah. No, see, so Mad Violinist, I think at the end, what we have is it's it's kind of two three three as far as the this the, the structure, right? It's sort of two three three. It's also kind of like two three one two, right? Again, that that line, which I think you could argue is the center of the whole poem, right? The line which, if there is a pivotal line, if there is a line which is the fulcrum, which is the 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 sort of logical and poetic center of this whole poem, it is that doom is near at hand, right? And we because we can see the way that that looks in both directions in several of these ways, right? For the from the meter, from the uh, from the rhyme scheme, from the syntax on several different levels. And also the content, right? I think that we can see that that line really is the pivotal line. It's not. It's not as structurally neat as like George Herbert would want it to be, right? Like a pivotal line should be the at this. You should have an odd number of lines, and it should be the middle one, right? Uh, they loved that kind of thing, as I said in the 17th century. But, um, but that's. Um, this poem doesn't seem to be interested in that kind of structure. Again, the structure insisted on by the rhyme scheme is not pivoting around a central, like symmetrically around a central point, but a, but a repeated echo, right? And again, so what is the echo? What is the uh, what is the the connection? Doom is near at hand. Is connected strongly to the halfling fourth shall stand. That is the doom, right? That is going to decide the doom. That is the doom that the council is going to decide. That is the that is the the council that shall be taken that will in the end be stronger than Morgul's spells. Is that the halfling fourth shall stand? That's going to be the outcome of the council, right? We know this. Spoilers. That's going to be the outcome of the council. That is going to be what will be stronger than Morgul's spells. Is the halfling fourth standing? So it's connected there, right? But of course, it's also connected backwards, right? Um, parallel to the councils taken and the Morgul spells, right? Earlier on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, 
Oh, so yeah, Cosmic 93. No, yeah, so don't take me too seriously here. Um, when I'm talking about, no, it doesn't have to have definite sections. <sighs> yeah, no, no, no. I'm just trying to understand. I'm trying to follow, to kind of gather the threads of all of the different cues that the poem is giving to us and try to sort of gather them together and see what the patterns are there. I'm not saying, like, we should introduce, like, line breaks or something, be like, section one, lines one through two, section two, lines three through five. It's not, it's, it, it, no. Now, I'm not saying that, like, you have to, like, put a hard stop in between those or anything like that. That's just a way of trying to follow the lead that this, to, to follow the breadcrumb trail that the structure of the poem is providing us, right? Uh, to, 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 um, or to say the same thing a different way, to perceive the patterns that are built in to this poem and to see where they point, to try to answer that so what question. Okay, so there's this complicated thing happening. So what? What does it tell us? What does it mean? What does it point to? Where does it take us? What's the point of it? Right. And to me, this is the point. So if we can say if we can, so if one conclusion that we can draw, we've been drawing several conclusions. Right. Uh, one conclusion is the is the importance of line six. Right. Um, you can say you can easily say anytime you want to. You could say something when you're looking at a poem, you could be like, I think line six is the most important line in the poem. But that statement doesn't mean anything. <laughs> OK. Oh, you think it's really important. Awesome. I'm glad it's meaningful to you. And don't get me wrong. You're totally entitled to find a particular line of a poem particularly moving. Right. How do you prove it? Prove it to me. Right. What makes you think? Why do you believe that that particular line is the heart of the poem, is the pivotal moment of the entire poem, is the center, is what this poem is about? Right. Uh, don't tell me you got a hunch. Don't tell me it just feels more important. Prove it. This is how you prove it, right? The way by looking at the patterns, by showing there are guides there, right? The poem tells you, right? There are structures, there are patterns here, um, and you can see shapes emerging uh, from these patterns when you look at them really carefully, right? And for me, this is how you. This is what this is what an English professor calls proving things. You can never prove it. This is an inductive conclusion, which means an inductive conclusion you can never be 100% sure of, right? You still might be wrong. You still might be perceiving the pattern inaccurately. There might be things, data that you're not noticing that changes the pattern subtly or, or dramatically uh, if once your eyes are opened to it. So, you know, there's all kinds of things that keep it from being, you know, it's not a, a certain conclusion. But I can feel... Um, um, I can feel if I, if I can have this kind of data to support it, if I can show the patterns and what all these patterns are pointing to and begin to show that this is where, then I can, that's one thing, one example. Again, there are other conclusions that we've come to. And so thinking through in terms, cosmic in terms of the sort of the structure, right, helps me. It's one way in which we can sort of see these sort of, uh, uh, pointing things. Um, 
Yeah. But the point that you're the follow up point that you're making there, um, you say you hear the change to the active voice in the last two lines most strongly that you'd go with one group of eight with a crescendo when he makes the point. Sure. No, I mean, there's no question that there's a crescendo there. Um, I get, I think the, the meter by itself says that you don't even, I mean, without any other data, uh, the meter does that those extra syllables at the beginning for Isildur's bane shall waken and the halfling forth shall stand. We've got a crescendo, right? It's almost like we get a little, a little drum roll for those last two lines, right? Absolutely. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's certainly true. But that's one data point, right? There are other data points. Um, there are other things that the poem is doing structurally. And that's what I'm trying to do is take all of those. T- this, is the f- this, is, this is the fun of the kind of inductive reasoning that we do when we do close reading and then we pursue it to try to draw conclusions is we, we find all of this data, right? We find all of this information and then we see what patterns does it form, right? Um, so, yes, I agree. That's a, that's a really important thing. But I'm not willing to privilege that above all the other observations and say that's the data point that matters. It's a data point and it matters a lot. Um, but there are other things that are happening, too. Anyway, um, interesting, Mad Violinist says the BBC radio adaptation supports my notion of line six. Uh, the singer who sang this, a boy soprano, changed key on the word doom. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting that they uh, they read it the same way. That's cool. Um, cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Bruinier, you are also correct. Uh, the enjambment, that's another form of structure. That's another data point that we haven't even talked about. The enjambment between lines three and four and five and six. Now, enjambment, remember, is when one line just immediately bleeds onto the next line without a pause, right? Notice how lines at the end of line one and line two, uh, we get uh, pauses. Seek for the sword that was broken. In Imlidris it dwells. There shall be counsels taken stronger than Morgul's spells. Here there's less of a break at the end of line three. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, an enjambment again. For Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. Those, those, the enjambment between seven and eight is not as close as between the other two. We get the comma ant, right, which is a signal usually that you've got two independent clauses being joined together, which is not what we have between three and four and five and six. So again, what what does that show us, um, Bruinier? It fits the pattern that we've been seeing of, again, not just a pivot around the middle, but of parallel structures. Right, that there shall be councils taken stronger than Morgul's spells, and there shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, are parallel. Right, and again, these are the ways in which, to me, I see that doom is near at hand. Again, being connected upwards as well as downwards to Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. That's to me why that line is, is the pivot. Right, is the fulcrum, of the entire, uh, of the entire poem. But anyway, okay. Uh, whew. I don't know about you. I had no, I, I had never, ever, ever noticed how incredibly intricate this poem is, right? Not all of Tolkien's poems 
a lot of Tolkien's poems are pretty intricate in this way. He loves poetic structure. He loves this kind of play of sounds and rhythms uh, and meanings. Um, but uh, yeah, Mad Violinus says, I, I always treated this as something of a throwaway. Me too. Me too. Absolutely. Um, it's easy to kind of dismiss the lapse into poetry here, especially in context, right? Out of it, I heard a voice remote but clear crying. And then we get verse. Of course you do, right? Of course we get a sort of a cryptic prophecy, a cryptic message slash prophecy in verse, right? Uh, yeah, but... Um, when we look at it closely, we see it's much, much more than that. This is an amazingly intricate little poem. Um, yeah. <laughs> For Thomas thinks we might have set a new record. Hey, when we're talking about poetry, all bets are off, man. Especially if we're talking about it. Like it's one thing when there's a poem that I feel like I understand pretty well that I've already really spent a lot of time with. And what, so what I'm doing is trying to walk you guys through some things that I think are really cool about it. I can, I'll, I can take long enough doing that. Right. But when I'm thinking from scratch as I'm, I've totally been doing over the last two weeks, uh, with this poem, I, um, I, I mean, yeah, like totally all bets are off. And let me emphasize again, and I, I just want to—I want to make sure this is perfectly clear, and that I'd, lest anyone thinking I'm think I'm being disingenuous or anything like that, this is a decision I made long ago on exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, that I, what I thought would be most fun, um, not not only for you but for me, um, it's one thing for me to present to you guys my own insights into the text, right? For me to come, you know, for me to do uh, a detailed reading that I walk you guys through in detail. I can do that. It's kind of fun to do that. Um, but what I thought would be cooler and honestly more beneficial in the long run, um, not just for you, but for me is instead to be more, um, uh, transparent with you, right? Uh, to have these sessions not be me walking you through arguments that I have carefully constructed or anything like that, or readings that I have prepared, um, but rather to be inviting you guys to the table to help me figure stuff out as we go through. Um, and I will admit, sometimes, if you feel like I'm laboring things, that's how my mind works. And honestly, there are times when I, like, I remember, I remember days, like I can picture where I was. Um, I remember for some reason, randomly a day that flashes into my mind is a day I was sitting in the parking lot of the public library in Dover, Delaware, waiting for my wife and kids to get out of a program that they were attending in the library. And I was sitting in my car in the parking lot with a pad of notebook paper and a pencil. And I was looking at the poems in chapter five of The Hobbit. I was writing my Hobbit book. Um, and I was sitting there with the mountain poem in particular. 
And I sat there and butted my head against that poem for like three hours easily, just kind of thinking it through and and uh, uh, and working it all out. I sit inside my car and think exactly mad violinist. That's what I was doing. Sometimes it takes me a long time. And then like, finally I'll kind of put things together. Sometimes I'll decide, well, you know, maybe it's just, you know, this, the kind of thing I'm looking for just isn't there. And that's why I'm having a hard time. But often I'm just like, it takes me a while to catch on to things. And my process is sometimes just beating my forehead against something until my forehead is bruised or until uh, the thing finally gives way. I can see through a brick wall in time, music Al. That's precisely my method. So, you know, I sometimes I just have to ask you guys to be uh, patient with me, right? Uh, um, uh, uh, when uh, when when we're doing this, but but that's exactly Brandon why I called this exploring the Lord of the Rings. Why I felt like this is the way I wanted to take this whole experience. Uh, as it unfolded, um, I would rather explore it together because this is there is a there is a sense in which this these discussions that we have are this is like the final and perfect marriage of the two things that I have always loved right of 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 writing of analysis of like what in my old faculty life I used to call my my scholarly work right. And what I would have called my teaching work, right? Um, here, I'm kind of, I'm doing both of those things at once in this kind of like perfect distillation of the two things. And it's really, really fun. And I love it. And I have gained so much more from this. There is no question. Like, if I had done this with you guys with The Hobbit before I wrote my Hobbit book, my Hobbit book would be so much better <laughs> than it is because my Hobbit book contains only my thoughts right? <laughs> that I came up with sitting in my car in parking lots, beating my heads, my heads against poem, uh, poems. But, um, um, but now there are so many things that you guys have drawn my attention to that just kind of having you guys here working through this with me, both the suggestion. Anyway, it's so much better. So this is why people who ask for exploring the Lord of the Rings, it's going to come, right? But it will be the product of what we do here together rather than just something I'm going to download uh, to you guys. Anyway, so that, it, yes, exactly, Scudo. It does mean that a really amazing Lord of the Rings book is coming in a decade or so is precisely, precisely what it means. Um, perhaps a discussion in 12 volumes for Thoughtless? Yeah, it might, uh, it, might be, it might be necessary. That might be precisely what we have to do at the end. Um, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, uh, cool. Well, I planned to <laughs> I planned to uh, go on and talk about the next passage but we've been discussing for a long time we should probably call it <laughs> yeah I'm getting yelled at for that suggestion no I'm gonna resist the temptation to do a, a whole slide tonight I mean whew, I I don't know about you but having done that uh, you know, eight lines of poetry that we already spent an hour talking about before. I'm, I'm, I think it's about as much as I can handle. Um, so, uh, yeah, so let's, um, 
let's let's stop there. So next week we will look at now. This is of course one of those moments. Needless to say, I assumed when I was planning this session that we would get to slide two tonight. That was my original plan, which is why I called the class an eye-opener. I always find these amusing, and Tony, you will have seen many examples of this already, when the title that I give to the class betrays the fact that I think we're going to get further than we do and we never get to the, the passage that I'm referring to in the title, right? But, but, I don't, um... I don't, I don't regret it, right? I don't regret it. Um, and if, indeed, we have had an eye-opener, right? Exactly, Mad Violinist. This poem itself has been an eye-opener to me. So we didn't get to Boromir's eye-opener, but I think we've, I, you know, I, I, I hope we've all had an eye-opener here uh, looking, <laughs> looking at this poem. So there we go. Um, no, it's not just an excuse to have to make more slides, because really it doesn't take that long. I have an e-text of the book, so it's just a copy and paste job making the slides. It's not that much work. Uh, but uh, anyway, okay. Awesome. Thank you guys uh, for this discussion tonight. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. We'll get another eye-opener next week. Um, so... I'm, we'll, we'll finish our book discussion here. I am going to go on and do the field trip tonight. We skipped the field trip last week, uh, which is just as well because I got so carried away talking about the meter of the poem. But um, we're, we're going to go ahead and do field trip tonight. So I'm going to say goodbye to the folks uh, on Twitter and on the talent as usual. Feel free to join us at twitch.tv slash signumu. And, uh, and you can join us there for, the, um, um, uh, for our field trip. Thanks, everybody. Uh, who is not going to be able to join us uh, on the field trip for joining us for the discussion. And uh, we, I will say goodnight to everybody else. Thanks, everybody. Let's shut down that. There we go. Did I get it? Yes, I did. Okay, excellent. Um, all right. Very good. And now, Valori could not be with me again this evening. There is uh, pestilence of a non-corona uh, nature in her household, but uh, uh, she has young kids, which pretty much means that. Um, uh, but uh, Druid's Fire is going to be with me here this evening. Good evening, Druid's Fire. Good evening, Professor. Good evening, everybody else out there in the universe. Yes, and for those of you, we're on the Honor server tonight, which is a legendary server, so a lot of people are going to be low-level characters. Um and that's fine. Yeah, Bricktails, absolutely. Uh, please do feel free to follow up about the uh, uh, teaching classes online stuff. Uh, and don't forget uh, to pass along the email mentor at signumu.org to anybody who has any questions about our mentorship program and might want to might wanna take advantage of that for themselves or for their school or program. Okay. Um, Anyway, so here on Honor, we have a safe trip tonight, which is this is always a risk with Honor, right? Because a lot of us are low level, uh, but we're just going to be inside safely inside Thorin's Gate tonight, so we should be we should be okay. Um, so let's head out to Thorin's Gate, and we'll finish. So we the last field trip we did, we got inside Thorin's Gate uh, and up to Dwalin, and then we got to. Um, uh, then we looked at the crafting area and the forges, which are clearly very important. Um, and then, but now tonight we want to look at the other bits, including the uh, the little uh, down. I almost called it underground. The whole thing's underground. Uh, the downstairs loop uh, in Thorns Gate. <clears throat>
The bar. Yeah, where the bar is. This is important. Okay. And of course, the festival typically happens, or and the festival starts tomorrow. Yeah, or... Oops, I'm 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 uh, I'm skating. I'm skating inside a horse. Oh, there we go. Okay, phew. Yes, the game is lagging. It's all good. Yeah, well, we're in Breeze, so there we are. Some of these problems... Sh oh, hang on a second. The Stable Master is invisible! To wait for him to manifest, there he is! Yeah, he's, you, you're you really lagging tonight, actually. Yeah, he's joined me. Okay. Not sure why that is. All right. What? I can't travel for coins to Thorn's Gate? Uh, you should be able to, actually. Yeah, um, I maybe just. So. It's not letting me. Interesting. No. Yeah, dismount. I think they messed something up. Oh, yeah? Possibly. Let's try that. Dismounting. Because, yeah, that's one of the Al, defaults. Can I be of service? Yeah, no. there was a bug they had recently. Uh, well, last year is that you couldn't use the mounted. How did you manage to mess that up? I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, wood with an H on the Twitch chat. Um, is it wood? Is the H silent? Or is it like wooth? It's wood. She's she's one of the regulars over on the DDO side as well. Do you think um, she would be offended if and... I called her wooth? Because the DH is the voice TH sound and like wooth is a really cool name. Just saying. I think it's awesome. No, Wood, we've actually been to uh, Thorin's Gate before, so he yeah, should well, be Well, not necessarily on this server, but still, Thorin's Gate is usually one oh, of the ones that's just that's open. Oh, that's right. But still, you should be able to get there regardless. Yeah. Anyway. No, no big deal. Um, oh! No money. No money! Of Let's course, see. right. I don't even have one silver. That's my problem. Okay. Right. Right. Okay, that is fascinating. Um, yeah, let's see. Um, yep, look at that. I have 90 coppers to my name. Well, okay. That explains it. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, no problem. Not used to having that particular problem. Uh, you know, that's a, like, you know you're on the legendary server win. Yeah, this it is a little too real, isn't it, Brandon? I can't afford... But, of course, the unrealistic thing is that I have mithril coins, but not a silver piece, right? I just sent you some money, though. Oh, th thank you. I appreciate it. And started Snorblom. So we, we oh, got you. You guys, are, you guys are too generous. Okay. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Oh, look at that. Oh, thank you, Snor Snorblom. That's great. Snorblom, are you here live? It's... Super early for you, isn't it? My goodness. Wow, that's uh, that is true dedication there, Snorblum. Uh, what time is it? It's like uh, oh, it's almost nine your time. Oh, daylight savings, right? Okay. Anyway, okay, all right. <laughs> We're good. Thank you. Uh, Narnian shall not have this problem again. Narnian will never go hungry again. Okay, let's head up into, into Thorin's Gate. Oh, you're on the left coast? I'm sorry. I thought you were I thought you were in Europe. 
Okay. Right. Got it. Um, okay. Great. Yeah, the name is Icelandic. That's what I thought. So I thought you were actually in Iceland. I thought you were one of our, uh, uh, one of our, yeah, uh, uh, Nordic folks. I know we have some, uh, some other folks from, um, from Iceland and, and Norway and Sweden who often, and Denmark, uh, who often attend our Twitch streams. So I had thought you were actually in Iceland. So that's why I was going the other way with the time. And I'm like, what is it? 4 a.m.? But okay. Makes sense. All right. So back under the, uh, Statue of Thorin at the Anvil. Okay. I really like the Statue of Thorin at the Anvil because... Me you know, too. I still think that's a really fascinating and indicative choice. And I take it to be a reference to the line. Of course, they would never admit this. The devs would never admit this because it's a line uh, that's in Unfinished Tales. Oh no, it's in the appendix actually. Pretty sure it's in Appendix A. Yeah, it's in the Thorns, uh, uh, the Thorns, you know, the Durin's Folk section of Appendix A. But anyway, the the where uh, you know they they are deciding what to do after the Battle of Azanul Bazar, and Thorin says that they'll they'll you know return to the Anvil. That at least the Anvil will keep them you know will keep their arms strong for uh, for future things. Anyway, um, all right. So this is the direction that we have not been. One of the things that's interesting me right away is the scarcity of doors. We have one door here. Right now we've been theorizing all along that this area that we're walking through is not a hall per se, but the underground equivalent of an outdoor area, right? And the actual, <clears throat> like, houses, the actual um, uh, dwellings and, you know, other such places, um, indoor sorts of places, are all in the walls and, and uh, inside the mountain. Uh, and this would seem to be, you know, as we can see here, of course, there's absolutely no reason to think that that door leads to a house which is contained entirely within this structure that we can see sticking out from the wall, right? I mean, in theory it could, but there's no reason, I don't see any reason to believe that um, that it should be or need be, right? Um but rather could be like this sort of outer foyer area or whatever of something which then extends back for who knows how long and contains who knows how many different locations and apartments within there, right? Um, that's what I take from that. So that means, of course, that there needn't be a dozen doors here, right? Because this, the fact that there's a single door in this wall over here doesn't necessarily mean that this is there's only one house in this whole area, but rather there's one sort of atrium right here, which then leads on to many different, you know, so this is more like, uh, could be something more like um, uh, the entrance to a whole like dwarvish condominium unit, right? Rather than just, there's only one house, you know, in this, in this, in this part. Exactly. 
Exactly, Keitruana. The single entrance door of a building with 300 apartments. It could very well be that. Um, because, again, see, and that, again, to me, would be a natural explanation for why so many of these walls are plain. Now, it is possible, um, Snorblum, as you say, that dwarves seem to love hidden doors. Uh, they're so good that you wouldn't see it. Exactly. And that's, remember, I was theorizing that in, um, what do you call it, the Dowerhand place that begins with an S, whose name is eluding me. Uh, it's uh, that place that's too high level for us to go on. Sarnor. Sarnor, thank you. Um, in Sarnor, why there were so many places that looked like sort of plazas, but which had no doors or maybe one door sticking out from it. And I was theorizing there are probably hidden doors in that wall that has no doors, but it seems to be a building behind. Um, so there could very well be, I mean, there could be a door in the middle of this wall right here, right? There could be a door right here. And we wouldn't know about it, right? Because we're just told that lots of dwarf doors are not made to be seen when shut. Now, obviously, we have other doors like this, which we see plenty of. Um, but that doesn't mean they all have to be like that. So there could be a lot, a bunch of side entrances which are just concealed, right? Okay, so what do we get over here? Um, I've always thought it was like storerooms or stuff, especially since we've had, you know, all the vendors here. They mm -hmm. need somewhere to store their Some of these things may be. Right. So, like, for instance, this bit right here, uh, especially, as you say, Druid's Fire, since we have all the vendors right around here, um, this sticky out bit, right, this sort of house shaped bit that sticks out from the wall. And notice, I don't think we've seen a single freestanding one anywhere. Right. They're all up against the walls. Um, yeah, they all they're they're not detached. Yeah, none of them are detached, which, again, would be consistent with them extending back in. It does seem possible that this is uh, a, a sort of a store, like a warehouse, right, for the... Um, yeah, exactly. Snurblum was just suggesting a small warehouse. It absolutely could be. A um, little odd to have the door on the far side from where they've set up shop, but hey, you know, you can't have everything. You can't make things too easy. Um, hang on a second. Is that the back side? Ooh, no, it's almost detached. This is a semi-detached warehouse, right? But again, still, we still have a kind of a back door here, which leads not into this big house that's over on that side, but rather to the whole wall and further back into there. I think this area over on our right has another door. Yes, it does, right over here. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, so I really like that. It's totally unclear how many dwarves live here, right? Um, certainly, I think the number of doors that lead out of visible doors uh, that lead out uh, onto this um, uh, certainly um, is not necessarily any obvious indicator of uh, you know, the population. Like, we couldn't look at this and be like, okay, there are four houses here. Right, one, you know, one, two, three, and then the one around the corner, four doors. Yeah, there are four doors, but who knows? Okay. I feel with Amazon. I think it's where they keep the booze. Well, you know, this one here, I wouldn't be at all. This is a, another little, even smaller kind of semi-detached thing. Would not be at all surprised if that were stocked with beer. Um, yeah. I like the warehouse's idea. That seems to me to fit. But I, I do think that's not true of the ones set in those walls over there. 
the ones I'm facing right now. Those, I think, are houses. But the, the two semi-detached ones there and there seem to me likely to be uh, uh, warehouses, given the proximity to the vendors. Um, now, I was just looking at, but forgot to comment on, the sort of portcullis there. Um, mm-hmm. Have we seen a portcullis like that? Have we seen that style of portcullis? It looks familiar, over by Sarnoria, the, but I'm the not river sure where exactly we Nog- saw it. Yeah, you're right, Barkwolf. Dwarves seem to be actively opposed to railings, right? Um, and I wonder, I wonder why. I mean, we know, of course, there are no railings or hand guards or anything like that. Um, on the Bridge of Casa Doom, obviously. But that's meant to be a defensive feature, right? That, uh, that bridge is supposed to be part of the defense structure of, you know, the, the, the front side of Casa Doom. Um, so I can't think that that's meant to be a model for how the whole, you know, like the whole tendency of, of dwarvish um, architecture and design is meant to be. Um, do those bats belong to somebody? Are those a cosmetic pet or something? Or are they just, do they live here? Uh, I think they're a shadow from something else in the uh, architecture. The bats? The ones that are flying around? Yeah, they're a shadow of something. Really? I do they're not so. actual bats flying around in here? Well, I think they're a shadow of birds or bats flying around, but not they right are near shadows. us. They're shadow bats. Wow, they're two-dimensional shadow bats. So what you're saying is that outside through this wall, there are probably birds or something flying around? That's really eerie. Now, nah, I'm going with shadow bats. I think there are shadow bats that live here. There might be pets of that laborer standing there. I'm sticking to it. Um, oh, and this guy's bothered. He looks a little freaked out. Will the guards not come? Why? Before one is tangled in my beard. Yeah, he's worried about the bats. Fetch the guards. Okay. So you're, this laborer is troubled about the bats. But yeah, they don't look like three-dimensional bats. No wonder he's freaked out by the shadow bats. They're clearly uh, flying through the wall, so... Yeah. It's yeah. maybe an illusion. Semi-corporeal... Spiritual bats. Spiritual bats, yeah. Black mom has got it. Yeah, they're spiritual it. bats. That's it. Thank you, Belong's mom. That's certainly it. Um, okay. There we go. Well, again, I'd be freaked out, too. If there were spiritual bats flying around me, um, what's 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 Snar's deal here? Oh, he's got some Sarnur quests. Yeah, these are the uh, the reputation vendors. Aha! Right on. Okay. Ooh, a set of fancy doors. As we've seen before, these are like the front doors of Thorns Gate. These are also like the doors of the housing development that we looked at. Um, 
Ooh, what's in here? I didn't even realize that they opened. Where did these go? Can I go? No. This is the um, the faction hall. You can't get in unless you're an acquaintance hall. of the rep. Got you know. it. Mm-hmm. Got it. It's like the Madam House in Nickel Delving. Yes. Well, my rep would be way too low to get in there. Okay. Well, I don't get in the clubhouse because I'm not cool. But speaking of cool, you know what is cool? Those statues. The plinth above it? Yeah. And the statues above it? Yeah. So... Trying to angle up without seeing my horse's butt, but uh, maybe you can see it better if you come over to the bridge. Here. Okay, these are two dwarf statues, kind of like the dwarf statues that we've been seeing, but these do not are these these are not holding an axe and they're not holding a hammer. They're holding what sh- are those shields? And they look like shields with a design on them. Yeah. We've not seen those before. It's like a round piece and then like a a piece going down to the ground. like a pointy bit. Yeah. Yeah. But we've seen the plinth before. The one up up, up between them. In between them. them. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Once again, horse butt shot. Love that. Yep. Yeah, we've seen that before. Um. Huh. Oh, hi there. You can see them a little bit better if you come over here to this bridge yeah. with the carpet on it by the fount- by the waterfall. Let me not fall off, which I've almost done several times now. In fact, let just me don't just dip mount. your beard in the waterfall. Yeah. Let me just mount. That'll solve my equine derriere problem. Um. Okay. Yeah, I can't see them quite as straight on, though, from over here. They do look a lot older than the structure they're mounted on, Katriana. It's one of the things I'm interested in here. Um, they actually look older than the plinth itself. They do look significantly older than the plinth. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and say, I think that these are repurposed statues. I think that these statues, these must be dower handy statues from ancient the ancient dower hand time. And yes, this is a bird, not a spiritual bat that's flying around us, right? Or is that a real bat? No, those are real bats. Those are bats up there. Those are non-shadow bats. Those appear to be three-dimensional bats. Okay, anyway, sorry. Getting distracted. They must have taken those statues from some more ancient structure or location and imported them here for some reason. And this is the... Oops. Um, sorry, I know we're all trying to look here. And I'm now backing up blindly, which is very likely to lead me to a cliff before long. Always a good thing to try to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, of course, really interesting that this is the... the you know, the faction clubhouse, right? This is the reputation hall. Um... It's like the, you know, this is like the private club of the Longbeards, and they have these old statues here. Maybe they're not Dowerhand statues. Could they be statues that were transported from somewhere? Maybe pre-Dowerhand statues? Well, Proto-Longbeardy? What if 
This would also explain why we haven't seen other versions of these statues yet anywhere. What if... Uh, I, exactly. See, so Barkwolf was just saying that uh, uh, Barkwolf has statues like this outside his house. He thinks he brought them, bought them in Moria. Um, that's just what I was thinking about. That's indirect evidence in support of my theory, Barkwolf. What if they brought these statues from the Moria area after the Battle of Azanulbazar? What if these are ancient Longbeard statues? What if those are round shields and the sticky-out bits at the bottom are beards? So, uh, we know they didn't go into Moria during the Battle of Azanulbazar. Um, but there's no reason to think that there weren't statues outside of Moria where they were, right? Um, where That is where they, the dwarves, were in fighting the battle. Um, and that would explain also why they're so weathered-looking, because they had been standing outside before. And of course, now they're standing next to an active waterfall, so you'd think they'd also get pretty weathered from that, too. But that would explain both the antiquity of these statues, the uniqueness of these statues compared to other statues, dwarf statues we've seen of similar make uh, around the Arid Lewin area, and it would also explain why they are on the uh, Thorin's Gate faction hall. I'm trying to puzzle out the design on the, the round part of the shield itself. I'm not personally convinced that the sticky down part is a beard. Um, not perfectly convinced. Just a theory. Yeah. Um, mainly because I would expect the beard to be tucked into a belt. Yeah, I mean, And there too. doesn't seem to be... The belt is Unless much higher. it was just like a deliberately exaggerated... But no, I think you're right. I mean, when you look at... Like, looking at the left-hand one from this angle, um, the beard does seem to kind of come to an end there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rather yeah. than be an exaggerated and it's also the carving of the beard is much more realistic it's not like a stylized beard that yeah you know, extends down so yeah i think the beard theory is there's right there's faint rays that could say well maybe it's a beard yeah um but the design on the actual main part of the shield it, it looks it's very strange it it doesn't it kind of looks like a mountain if you're looking at it from the top well see to me it kind of looks like a tudor rose or something of that nature. Yeah, something of that nature, like yeah. a center design. But there seems to be something on the left leading into it. Hmm. I have precisely what I can't see from this angle. Let me, let me go back. If Towards. only they tell us an admin camera. Yeah. Yo, man, I can't even tell you how many times streaming this game I've wanted to be able to levitate my camera. Cannot even tell you how many times I've. I keep trying to convince Jerry to let us have it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd pay for that. Okay. Anyway. Huh. Not sure. The only thing I see on the left hand side is his arm, which comes around the front, and there's his right hand as well. So you can see both of the hands. The hands are not at like ten and two. They're at like eleven and one, right on uh-huh. the top. Yeah, of the yeah, yeah. So I'm looking at a, a, a shadow, like a line leading toward the central design below the, the figure's right hand. So at mm-hmm. the um, 11 o'clock position, like yeah. right below that, there's a little line that kind of leads into that central design. Maybe. I mean, it could just simply be a crack, but yeah, it, could be a it crack. seems to 
not like there it does seem like there are lines though radially like there's another line down here at like five o'clock and another mm-hmm. one down here at seven o'clock um, yeah on on the outer circle like where the chevrons would be on stargate yeah. but yeah. this would yeah. be actually inside the these below the hand inside the main section of that line okay of the uh yeah maybe so maybe so yeah Ooh. okay hang on hang on uh pontine just posted a picture uh, oh hey look at that of one that's inside uh the hall so hang on a thank second. you very much pontine yeah let me hang, uh let me uh let me shift that over here. Dun, dun, dun. That's my Discord window. Let me okay. There we go. All right. Wow, that's a good deal clearer. Obviously, it helps if you don't put them out under a waterfall, right? You know, preserves it a little bit. You can see more detail. That's not an identical statue. The position of the arm isn't the same. Notice that in the ones here, the um, well, maybe we're it also is. on an angle down here, so yeah. I, I think it is the same actually. It is the same, yeah. No, I was thinking, I thought at first that the bottom of the shield didn't go all the way down to the feet, but I think it's just because the feet kind of disappear into the into the. Roof. Yeah, you can see the the statue on uh on the right hand side toward closer to the waterfall. Yeah. You can see the right foot of the statue poking out. Of- yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think that with the lines that you were seeing there, um, are uh, the the sort of inner detail work. You know, a, a bit of the mm-hmm. inner detail work that we couldn't make out in the one on the outside. Okay, so it's definitely not. It looks le- much less like a Tudor rose when you can see all the details. Uh, just a die, uh, die, well, die. It's the kind of diamond. geometric structure that we've so often seen, right? Where you've got the, you know, you've got the the square, then inside the diamond with the four lines dividing that evenly up into four sections, and then that inside another square tilted in another direction, and then that inside a circle, and then sticking out from that, right? The diamonds at radial points and everything. Um, uh, so anyway, that's um, uh. Seeing that design up close, it looks less idiosyncratic than I would have thought. It's it's the kind of design that we see in lots of other places. Um, but I don't remember seeing that exact design anywhere. I don't recall it either. I think that the... The style of this statue, like the... Archi- the not the architectural, the, the, the sculptural style... I miss Valori here to talk about this, but it's not the same kind of stylized. We've seen a couple different versions of sort of greenish dwarf statues like this. And this one strikes me as being different from the rest of them. Um, Stylistically, it doesn't match any of the ones we've seen before. Yeah, it doesn't match the ones that look sort of stylized and crude, except for the axe, which is a different color and in much more detail, right? In much more realistic detail, whereas the or the the dwarf itself looks almost like a a chainsaw sculpture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's not 
nothing like the style of those. It's nothing like this. Well, I won't say nothing like, but it's not very much like, for instance, the style of Freren on his pedestal, right? Down in Freren's court. Um, Correct. It's quite different from both of those stylistically. Look at look the fingers, right? We get individual articulated fingers um, and thumbs uh, along the top of the shield. Uh, separate mustaches and beard. The way the shoulder plates of the armor go and you can see sort of his arm disappearing up underneath the shoulder plates of the of the armor. All that stuff. The shoulder plates actually remind me of like um, Dunedain outfitting, actually. Mm-hmm. A little bit, sure, sure. Yeah, again, I don't. This, I mean, and you're right in that the the armor structure that we can see here um, is different, both from the other statues, I think, and from the um, and from the actual live dwarves that we've seen in armor. Uh, walking around. I'll have to compare and contrast. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Puntine, for that. That's uh, uh, super helpful. Uh, see, Puntine, with uh, assistance like that, we can survive without the levitation camera. Okay. Alright, let's keep going. Oop, getting late. Can't keep going too far. Yeah, the dwarves clearly just don't have a fear of heights. They also must have really long fishing lines. That's quite a bridge to be fishing off of. Just saying. Okay. And then over here, we have... Similar now, this with this double door here, I think this is probably not a warehouse. The double door suggests to me more confidently a kind of... Uh, you know, apartment or even kind of grand home structure. Yeah, the door is actually a finer detail as well. Um, yeah. You know, it looks like finer materials, better craftsmanship on it. I mean, you're not going to put a really nice door on a storehouse versus your right. actual. Right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. This isn't like the wooden doors that we were seeing before. This is a mu These are much more ornate. They look sturdier as well. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Frumius Bujum is suggesting that the, the dwarves apparently fishing are actually fishing for, for shadow bats. They're not fishing for fish. Uh, so that's why they're up so high. I like that theory. That works for me. Um, is there anything other than the water that's down? No? Okay. This is just basically Thorin's Gate fishing hole. All right. Yeah, there is that area down there. Hang on. I'm going down there for a second. Oh, we got some dwarves dancing. I was always very grateful that there was this set of stairs here. As uh, I do remember accidentally falling off that bridge on at least one occasion when I was initially exploring this area as a low-level person. Um, okay, one of these ornate doors again. Yeah, what's directly upstairs from this? What does this back onto? Because there's another set of stairs. Yeah, right, so it's the, it's the floor up here. So 
again, this this makes it really clear. This whole house or whatever you know this actually is here that Lestor is in. It's all beneath the floor, right? So this shows more clearly than any other place we've seen how the housing and stuff is all is all inside rather than thinking of it as a house we can see how the the floor of the of the street above goes right over, is is the roof of this house right um yeah again showing that it's it's not actually a house with a roof um it's just a facade in front of a stone wall behind which the dwarves live um yeah, Brandon, I agree, given the weight of the traditional apparel of the dwarves, it's hard to imagine that they're very active swimmers. Okay, um, here's the downstairs. I think we'll have to wait until next time. It's 12.30, and I think sufficiently late for me to keep everybody up tonight. Um, so we'll do one more field trip inside Thorin's Gate, and then are we pretty much done with Arid Lewitt? After we do that? I think so, yeah. We, we've covered this pretty thoroughly. I think we'll have gone end-to-end end of Arid Lewin very carefully. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, um, we'll have to decide where to go next after, uh, after having finished Arid Lewin. So, um, okay. So I'm going to say thanks to everybody and good night. Uh, thanks for coming along on my field trip, for looking at these, uh, this other side area here and discovering the shadow bats of Arid Lewin. Um, and I will see you guys next week. I'll be around next week. I will say, and I forgot to mention this, um, I think I, I, I will probably uncancel uh, Grifflet this week. Uh, hopefully a more successful uncancellation this week than last week. Last week I had a failed uncancellation. Um, I uncancelled and then ended up having to recancel. So I'm hoping to uncancel permanently this time, this week. So I will I should be able to be back for my Grifflet stream this week. Alright. Yay. Thanks everybody. Good night. Night. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of the Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.